Our passage this morning is, uh, is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. Uh, let us give our, our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, this morning we continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We are into the last week of of Jesus' earthly ministry Uh, The the last week in Jerusalem, what we often call Holy Week, we saw how Jesus entered Jerusalem, his rightful city, as his rightful king. He comes on a donkey, uh, revealing that he comes in peace. He's received by the crowds to some extent. They they hail him as, as deliverer, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He goes to the temple as, as the rightful uh, priest, and he, and he cleanses it. He drives out the money changers. He, he curses the fig tree with this symbolic, that's symbolic of Israel's fruitlessness. That's his word as a prophet that pronounces judgment over Jerusalem. The next day he returns to the temple and and these confrontations are escalating between Jesus and the religious authorities. And so he tells three parables that all communicate basically one message and that, that message is continued into today's parable. And that is the point that Jesus is making that there is a transfer. The kingdom is being taken away from those you would most expect it to belong to and it is being given to another. In this morning's passage, Jesus says, to teach this truth, that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. In order to understand what Jesus is doing, what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom that he is ushering in is like, he wants to take us on an adventure in wedding planning. may not sound exciting. I'm sure some of you love weddings in this room. I'm sure others of you uh, do not love weddings. We live in a society where we might say, you know, the state of marriage is is not doing too great, and I think that would be true, but at least pre-COVID, the wedding industry has never been more booming. It's what's often called the wedding industrial complex, bridal expos and conventions, this sophisticated and, and thorough interconnected industry of venues and vendors and products trying to create a day to remember. Now, as you can imagine, for most of us, our picture of weddings as, as 21st century Westerners looks pretty significantly different than what a wedding would look like in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. 
Maybe if you come from a traditional culture from other places in the world, there might be more similarities. But I think what's more important than the differences is that there, there are some things that ring true, and that is our access into Jesus' parable. We don't have to use our imaginations too much to understand what Jesus is talking about. How is the kingdom of heaven like a wedding? Well, there may not be photographers or videographers or florists or caterers or DJs, but we do have four aspects that are which are our point of access into the story that Jesus tells us. And it's by looking at who the host of the wedding is. It's by looking at the wedding invitations. It's by looking at the guest list and the dress code that we'll realize what the kingdom of God means, and in particular, what it means for us, sitting in this room, day in and day out. What kind of wedding is being thrown, and how does this wedding communicate such glorious realities of the gospel, of what God has done for us? of what Jesus has done for us, of what the Spirit continues to work in us, and all of that is available to us. So if you're taking notes in your bulletin, you see the, the four points, because, again, this is, we're, we're doing a wedding analysis, right, of this, of this king who throws the wedding for his son. And so we'll look at the hosts, the invitations, the guest list, and then the dress code. The first thing we'll want to look at is the host of the wedding. Uh, obviously, this is not an ordinary wedding. It's not like the weddings we go to. Uh, this is a wedding feast thrown by a king to honor his son. The son, uh, presumably, we can say, is the prince. Now, we've seen the past couple of weeks that Jesus is beginning to emphasize more clearly his unique relationship with the father. There is an intimacy and a privilege that Jesus has been more and more clear about, not just to his group of disciples, but even to his opponents. He's saying, the Father has this unique relationship with me. He's saying, don't miss it. Someone greater than a rabbi is here. Someone greater than another prophet is here. And so the feast, Jesus says, is to celebrate the Son, which is to say it's to celebrate Jesus. But the first character that we need to examine is the Father. He's the King. He's the host. And this parable reinforces so much of what we have seen before in Matthew. We have this collective imagery that just keeps getting fuller and, and, and fuller. When we conclude our study in Matthew, Lord willing, around Thanksgiving, that's at least what the calendar in my, in my head says, uh, one of the things we're going to grasp is, like, what, what have we gained from Matthew? And, you know, I would say, I, I, ho I hope we've, we've come away with an appreciation of spending time with Jesus, because we're always confronted by his greatness, uh, that we can't put him into our boxes, but we're always confronted by him, and it's always gentle because he always does what he demands, which is so, so beautiful. We learn more about the kingdom of God that shapes us, that shapes our, our desires. It is to shape how we live ethically, how we are to think. But let me give you this one. I hope we walk away from Matthew with a richer understanding of the heart of the Father. That is such a big point for Jesus. He keeps giving us more and more insight into what the heart of the father for his children looks like. Like a kid at the beach, right? He, he gets in the car at the end of the day and their bucket is full of seashells. When we get out of the gospel of Matthew, we should have a bucket full of these beautiful truths of God's heart for us. So Jesus says, join me in praying, not to the father, not to my father, but come on in. We pray to our father. Don't be anxious, Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds in the air. Your father cares for you. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Let me tell you what God is like. He is a shepherd who leaves 99 of his sheep to go pursue the one. 
How about the, uh, the parables that we've been looking at the last month? He is this inefficient property manager who keeps going out to the workforce looking to find more and more laborers. Uh, he is the, the owner of a vineyard who goes and sends servants to the wicked tenants who, who beat up those servants. So he says, what the heck? I'm going to go send more servants. They beat them up. And he says, then I'm going to send my son. And so he keeps giving and giving and giving and giving until he gives up his own son. Same theme, same idea in this picture of the kingdom. The king sends his servants to make sure the invitations go to the guest list. And the servants are ignored. In verse 4, again, he sends other servants. He says, you know, I know weddings can maybe be not so great, but let me tell you, this is going to be a great barbecue. The barbecue is ready. The smoker's going. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Come to the wedding feast. And they pay no attention, and they wander off. This is a story, almost like all the parables, this is a story that just doesn't make sense in the real world. Why in the world does a king need to appeal at all to have people come to his wedding? There's so much grace in the invitation. I mean, shouldn't the guests have circled this on the calendar and be like, that is the one thing I cannot miss? If you've spent any time in the workforce, I'm sure you can relate to the idea of being called to the boss's office or maybe being invited to a social event by a boss. Let me give you a big example, right? If you worked at Amazon, maybe in the mailroom, or you worked in the HR department, or let's say you are a high-level developer for Amazon.com and Jeff Bezos invites you to his kid's wedding, what do you do? You get there. You get there. For most of our bosses, we get there. But the king is ignored. And so he pursues more than is reasonable, right? He's ignored. He says, well, go, go out again. It feels like week after week we are meditating on this incredible theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. That this, this Bible right here, this is the story of the God who pursues a rebellious people. It begins in the Garden of Eden, Adam sins. And, and I'll tell you, God is looking directly at Adam when he says, Adam, where are you? It's the language of pursuit. From Genesis to Revelation, God is in the business of pursuing his rebellious people. Jesus' message in these parables is, is, is why haven't you listened? Why haven't you responded to, to God's pursuit of you? What's powerful is that the king, of course, eventually does stop reminding those invited to the feast. And he says, you know, go out to the highways and byways because this party is still happening. And that's the story of the mission, mission of God. He will bring in others to share in the joy of his son. We have been brought in to share in the joy of his son. Why are you here right now? If you love Jesus, if, if, if you seek uh, to, to follow him as your Lord and Savior, if you are here to worship God and say the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures is, is, the, is the everything, he is the all in all, um, you are here because the host pursued you. You are here because the host pursued you. It is only because he is the one who has pursued you. It's the only reason you're here. It's the only reason I'm here. If you are a stranger, if you are an outsider who the king has pursued, then the whole foundation of your life and my life is pure grace, and that has everything to do with our lives. Our lives, our relationships must be saturated with grace and repentance, or maybe we haven't heard the call of the servants who went and gathered everyone who had come to the feast. As the hymn puts it, right, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. God is a God who pursues 
The host extends invitations graciously to those who ignore him, but his wedding hall will be full. If I could give you the theme of this sermon, it, it would be that line, which I'll come back to again and again. The wedding hall will be full. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit will not be alone. They will bring others in to share in the delight of that joy. That's the host. Fair enough. Move on to the second aspect, the invitation. This parable communicates a very basic point that is so easily overlooked, but I think it is essential for grasping the gravity of what Jesus is teaching in this parable. It is an obvious point, but it is one I think that's probably the easiest point to miss, which is that this invitation is for what? A fiesta. It's for a party. It's for a banquet. This invitation is not to some dour, drab event. Um, they are invited. The guest list that is ignored, right? They're summoned to a party. It's a feast. This isn't like the British family royal wedding that's all pageantry and, and stuffiness. Now, the, 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 again, the barbecue is ready to go. They're not being invited to a funeral. They're not being invited to the boss's daughter's piano recital. They're being invited to partake of a feast and join in on the celebration. And so we have 14 verses Eight times, that little phrase, wedding feast, is repeated. As if to say, don't miss it, because everyone else is missing it. It's a wedding feast that you are invited to. Why is that such a hard thing to grasp? Well, maybe we have a mixed idea of weddings, right? Many of us have been to some bad weddings. Mercifully, none of you unrelated to me were at my wedding. We sat down to plan the reception with the backup DJ. The first choice wasn't available, and the backup DJ said, what kind of vibe do you want for your wedding? What kind of music do you want for your wedding? And, and we said, we just don't want, like, traditional party music and, like, conga lines. Like, that would probably be ideal. And he says, I hear you. I got you. Music comes on at the wedding, and she's a brick house. <laughs> you kidding me? My heart goes out to my guests who hopefully have moved on 17 years later. So that's why we have the mixed idea. But this isn't that kind of wedding. This is an invitation to the joy of following Jesus. And this may be one of the most precious lessons drawn from this passage. It's something that we so easily forget and we never talk about. It's that we are invited. The Christian life is one of invitation into the fullness of joy. You've heard me say from this, this pulpit, you've heard me say like, you know, the Christian life is hard. I've said those words, I believe those words, I do think the Christian life is hard. Jesus himself says that following me is going to feel like taking up a cross, but it's, while the, holding those things to be true, we also say, but it's worth it, because we also realize that that joy that we were created to have, it's only fulfilled in him. We're so drawn into the false joys of our world, uh, because the world constantly offers us these, these false joys of pleasure, of happiness, of contentment. It doesn't take hardly anything to knock us off track. It doesn't hardly take anything to distract us. We set our hearts on that which is transient and fading. If you remember our series in Ecclesiastes, we so easily set our hearts on vanity, vapor, mist. It's here one minute and it dissipates. It is gone the next. That's what happens here. Because in verse 5, the invitation goes out and they paid no attention and they went off. And what are they doing? One to his farm and another to his business. In verse 6, it's true that the rejection is violent and it's anger, but, but notice that the first rejection is just busy indifference. They exchange the joy of the wedding feast of the king for, their own, uh, for, for seeking their joy, purpose, and identity in this world. And how easily we do the same. 
The Protestant reformer John Calvin, writing in the 16th century, the 1500s, he said this, he said, hardly one person in a hundred can be found who prefers the kingdom of God to fading riches. Nothing's changed, John. So many ways, a different world, but the same story. Same story, the same battle in all of our hearts. We were created for heavenly glory, and yet how easily and often we are pulled away to live for things that are just passing. It's easy to buy the lies of our culture, which insist otherwise. Our happiness is found in fulfilling sexual desires. That's the true me. That's where I will find that, that joy that I'm looking for. It's found in acquiring stuff. You just need to purchase this. You just need to, to get more and more. If you get this one thing, then you will be content. It's found in my career and, and this idea of success that I have. Then I will have made it. It's found in my own righteousness, right? All we talk about is the polarization of our society, all of the, the political uh, rhetoric that we have. What does all of that speak to? Righteousness. Those are righteous categories. And it is through pursuing righteousness and by identifying the unrighteous, then then I will be happy. But none of that registers. But none of that registers. And it's why we need to come back and say, you know, following Jesus is where joy is found. At the end of the day, we have to say, I am a follower of Jesus, not only because it's true and the tomb is empty, which is absolutely true, but it's also like joyous. It's joyous. It's where joy is found. Like what is so joyful about being a Christian? It's because like we, we know God. Like we're not guessing. God has given himself to us. We know who God is. Shouldn't that be some category of joy? Because so much is spelled out by knowing God. That's how we know ourselves. It is to be known and loved by God. Isn't that an occasion for joy? To have my sins forgiven. To know that everything that I find alluring ultimately won't satisfy. That right there is probably the pathway to joy, is, is to be able to read between the lines, but also to know that those are some good desires that are met and satisfied in God. What else gives us joy? How about that I can face the inevitable and frankly at times terrifying reality of my own mortality and death? Because I can just cast myself on Jesus and know that he is victorious over even that great enemy. Do you feel that joy today? Is this joy missing? Is, is this joy being modeled in your lives and in your homes that every good thing, we have so many good things and they're all just breadcrumbs on the trails back to the heart of the Father who, is, who loves us. Um, every church service, we don't come here to get more stuff on our to-do list or hopefully you don't leave here with a whole bunch of obligations. You came here with obligations, you left here with obligations, but you also had more than anything Jesus' proclamation that he is obligated to you and that he keeps you and he feeds you a meal. The Holy Spirit indwelling you with the spirit not of servanthood. Uh, this, the Holy Spirit doesn't give us a spirit that beats us up. It's a spirit that says you are a child of God. You are a child of the king over all kings. He is your Abba Father. At God's right hand, the psalmist says, is the fullness of joy, and he invites us to partake of the joy. Don't miss the invitation. We've seen the host, God pursues. We've seen the invitation, join in the party, join in the wedding feast, join in the joy. How about the guests who are invited? Who is on the guest list? After the king's servants are ignored by the original invitees, they are sent to the main roads to bring in a new group of guests. But we notice, this is pretty shocking, that the original guest list isn't just scratched out. It's not just discarded. All of a sudden, the king... Um, Puts, takes off his wedding garments and puts on his, his, his warrior clothes. He deploys troops. Their city is burned. Now that's actually the main point of the parable, keeping in step with what we've read the past few weeks. It explains why Jesus is telling the story here. 
Who are these servants that are sent to, to invite people into the wedding feast? Again, these are the Old Testament prophets sent to prepare Israel for her coming King Jesus. And this is the story of their treatment. And so the kingdom is now being taken from those you would most expect to have it, and it is given to another people. Who is it given to? Both Jew and Gentile who heed the invitation to share in the joy of the Son. Verse 9, the king announces, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I don't know about you, uh, if you ever peruse advice columns, occasionally I do. One very common theme you see in advice columns is invitation etiquette. If you've ever thrown a wedding, you know the, the awkwardness of forming the guest list, and there's a lot of etiquette you want to keep in mind. Do I have to invite this close family member who, let's just say, parties too hard? Uh, do I have to include my niece and nephew in the bridal party because they just got braces? That's a real question I found. <laughs> my cousin started a catering company, and I feel obligated to hire him for the reception. Help me to feel unobligated to do that. That's the, invita uh, the invitation etiquette that we can all relate to, but that is not the invitation etiquette of the king. Again, the heart of the parable is verse 10. They gather everyone they can, the good and the bad, again, so that the hall will be full. Who would ordinarily be invited to this wedding put on by the king? We might say, who would ordinarily be invited into the kingdom of God? It'd be the chief priest, you bet. It'd be the Bible scholars and teachers, the Pharisees, absolutely. But no, they pay no mind to the invitation, and in turn they receive judgment. The troops are deployed, the city is burned, which speaks to the year 70 AD, when the general Titus, the Roman general Titus, destroys, ransacks, and burns Israel. But in the judgment of Jerusalem, there's an invitation that goes out to the world. The wedding hall will be filled. Go therefore, that is the exact same command that Jesus gives in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go therefore is the, is the command of mission. Go therefore and take this invitation to the world. Go take it to the highways and byways. Take it out to the intersections. On the one hand, the insiders ignore the invitation, but here the servants go to the roads, they go to the outsiders, they go to the outside places, and they gather all whom they found, and I hope our church notices this particular line, because it's everything, they gather both the good and the bad. What qualified them to come? They responded to the invitation. It turns out maybe the folks on the original guest list took their invitation for granted. Maybe they had their eye on a, on a better invitation. I know you've been there when you're invited to something, but you hold off because you're always looking for something a little bit better. Maybe they were doing the same thing. They were holding off for a better invitation. But in this scene, we have the grace of the gospel on full display. The openness, the gratuity of grace. It goes out to the good and the bad on the highways and byways. The fundamentally offensive message that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. At the right time, while we were outsiders, far out there on the highway, we were gathered in for the wedding feast. What qualifies the guests? They took the invitation. Were they good? Jesus says, sure. <laughs> sure, some were relatively good. Some of those were people you'd love to have as your neighbor. Were they all good? No, some were bad. But they too heeded the call. Jesus takes the kingdom from those who assume their place in line based on their own goodness and righteousness and standing, and he fills his hall with those who are united in one particular essential way 
They heeded the invitation of their king. The parable of the wedding is about the God who pursues a people for himself. It's the joy of salvation that we have been invited to. And it is a guest list that is flipped upside down. And finally, we'll conclude with the dress code. It is a wedding after all. And one essential line you always put on your wedding invitation is wedding attire. It's a good question. What do I wear? Is it casual? Is it, is it formal? Now, I think there's a twist in this parable. Uh, this isn't just a story about what happened back in the first century, though that's true. Jesus brings his audience into the parable. You could say Matthew, or the readers of Matthew, you and I, we are brought into this story. And so an analogy is that Jesus is kind of breaking the fourth wall. Have you ever heard that phrase, to break the fourth wall? It's when, when you're in a play or a movie, and the, and the characters turn and face the audience. So in a movie, the character looks directly into the lens as if he's speaking directly to you. And I think there's an analogy of, of, of something that Jesus is doing here. Verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What is the garment the wedding guests are supposed to be wearing? What do they need to wear? Better question, what do you and I need to wear? And here's what's beautiful. Um, if the good and the bad are called, we're going to presume that they don't have wedding garments that are dry clean in their closets ready to go. So it's apparent that the king who generously called the people, who generously provided the feast, also provided the wedding attire. Now what does that look like? Matthew doesn't spell it out for us, but I think we can start to break this down a little bit. It looks something like putting on Christ. Again, Matthew doesn't say explicitly, or Jesus doesn't say in this parable, you know, this is what it means to wear the proper garment. But through his gospel, he shows us what it looks like to wear the proper wedding garment. Every person who demonstrates saving faith, especially outsiders in Matthew, they come to Christ empty of themselves but full of faith. So think of the centurion who comes and he wants healing for his, his servant. And he, and he says, will you come and heal my servant? And Jesus says, wait a second. You want me, a Jew, to come into your house, a Gentile, to break all social conventions, to have everybody look at this as this mess of destroying social conventions. And the guy says, yeah. And Jesus says, I have yet to see such faith in all in Israel. Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler, he's got nothing left. He's at the end of his rope, and so he casts himself on Jesus. And so Jesus takes off, and the woman with the bleeding issue comes, and she has given everything to try and heal herself. She's got nothing less, and so she literally physically casts herself on Jesus with nothing but hope that he will turn and face her. The paralytic who can give only himself can only cast himself on Jesus. They have nothing to give. They have no garment to put on, and so they cast themselves on Jesus, and he, in turn, clothes them with his grace. We have nothing to offer, and the hope of what Jesus has done in his perfect life, death, and resurrection is to clothe us, clothe us with his righteousness. Now, what does this mean regarding the man not wearing the wedding garment in the story? It means that he is wearing something other than Jesus. He thought that his best would do just fine, but it was not good enough for God. This is a warning of judgment to anyone who relies on his or her own perceived goodness. You rely on your own record, your own righteousness to gain entry into the kingdom. And we have such a powerful example of this in the story because the king goes to the man and he says, Friend, what are you wearing? 
And in the presence of the king, the man is speechless, which I think is so fascinating. You know, one of the great evangelistic lines that I've used more times in my life than I can imagine, I think it's a great one, is if you were to die tonight and standing before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would your response be? I think it's a great question. I think in reality, though, that's not how it works because notice what happens. You stand before God, and he says, why should I let you in? And you are speechless because the righteousness you thought would get you in the door You can't even argue before the righteousness of the king. Maybe our hope is not that we say even that Jesus has done something, but Jesus says, no, 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 that's mine. The beginning chapters of Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us brothers in the assembly. Jesus says, I got that one. I got that one. What are you wearing? Speechless. We can't forget what gained us entrance into the kingdom. We can't lose sight that what gained us entrance keeps us in the feast, that the God who called us clothes us. This is all connected with what we've seen before because to lose sight of the righteous robes of Jesus is to forget the heart of the Father who not only desires us to celebrate in the joy of his Son, but he even sends his Son to prepare the way for us. The easiest way to lose joy in Christ is to see Christianity as a project that you are building through your own hands, through your own works, your own spirituality, or your own morality. To lose sight of the righteous robes of Christ is to see something inherently savable and worthy in yourself. And so the call here for the wedding feast is don't lose sight. Don't lose your hope. What's your hope? Isaiah knew this hope in Isaiah 61 when he said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. How come, Isaiah? Why are you rejoicing? Because he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has covered me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with this beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, so God adorns me. You see here Isaiah's hope. God sets up a dress code that none of us can fulfill on our own, but he provides it. The son worthy of all of our celebration and adoration. We're all invited to the feast in his honor. He himself, though, is our salvation. And the robes of righteousness we wear are his. How appropriate that we turn now to the Lord's Supper. Just a taste. Just a taste of the divine feast that our God calls us to. It's not just that Christ's body and blood are on display. It is also that the heart of the Father is on display and his pursuit of us. He who calls us to find our joy and satisfaction in him. Um, this is a meal celebrated here, and, and you know where we are in time and history, right? We are on the main roads. We are on the highways and byways, the outskirts of town. And this is a meal that proclaims Jesus, the precious son of God given to us, the righteous one who bestows upon us his righteous robes. What a gift that God has prepared for us. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, seal this word into our hearts. Lord, help us to to maintain the the truths of of your word that that we have grasped hold of this morning, that we would be able to leave this place and to operate in a way that is so dependent on uh, the heart of our Father for us. Lord, help us to to remember the joy. Help us to remember the, the beautiful grace of the invitation 
the gratuity of the gospel uh, that, that calls us to the feast, not because we are good, uh, it does not exempt us because we are bad, but instead it, it brings us in and it clothes us, our king clothes us with the righteous robes of Jesus. Lord, th- these aren't just theological truths. These aren't just um, interesting doctrines that we want to grasp hold of. These are instead life-changing, life-foundation-building relationship oxygenating truths. Lord, help us to grasp hold of them. We need you to do that work. If, if this has any difference in our lives, Lord, we need you to, to do that work in our lives. And we're so confident that you do because you are the God who has promised that you would do so, that your word does not return empty. So Lord, we're so thankful for you and your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.